The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 24 verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit and said to them, and he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do your doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'll add my welcome to that of Chad's. My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're glad to have you with us this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, just out of curiosity this morning, I'd love to know, um, we were kind of overwhelmed, you know, all week we were wondering about sunrise service, because it said it was going to rain all week, and like, how many bulletins do you print? What do you do? And then we had this gorgeous sunrise this morning. How many of y'all made it to the sunrise service this morning? And how many of y'all stayed for donuts? <laughs> I wonder how many people are having a sugar crash at this point. It was amazing this morning. We had 500 bulletins printed, and we ran out way before the people stopped coming. Uh, fantastic morning. So great way to start the Lord's Day, and I'm so glad y'all are here uh, for this service this morning. Uh, before we um, dive in and study God's Word, let's ask His blessing on our time. Risen Lord, we come... Uh, this morning with eager hearts, eager to celebrate your resurrection. Eager, Lord, to hear from you, eager to hear from your word, eager to have your spirit work in our hearts. You tell us, Lord, that your word is living and active, that it can penetrate our hearts. You 
tell us that it never returns to you void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would take this passage and press it deep into our hearts, that the reality of the resurrection, that the reality of what's been done for us would be something that shapes us, Lord, not just on what we do on Sunday morning, but that shapes every moment of every day of our lives. So use it now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been described as the best known, the, bo- the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about work of art in all of history. It's a 500-year-old painting that's also the most highly valued painting on the planet. It has an estimated value, get this, approaching $900 million. It was suggested in 2014 that it be sold to offset the rising national debt of France. Its subject is believed to be the wife of Florentine businessman Francesco del Giocondo, and her name was? Good. Thought it was going to be silence there, but y'all caught on. Yes, Leonardo da Vinci painted it. It hangs in the Louvre today in Paris. The Louvre, I read this week, hosts 10 million visitors a year. That's 30,000 visitors a day. It's believed that 80% of the museum's visitors come primarily because the Mona Lisa is on display there. But here's the amazing thing about the Mona Lisa. They recently conducted a study, the museum did, conducted a study about the Mona Lisa. As famous as it is, as much as it is the centerpiece of the entire museum, it doesn't really hold visitors' attention like one would think it does. The average viewing time for the most famous painting in the world is 16 seconds. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty obvious that our attention spans are short. It's pretty obvious that we live in a fast-paced world and for us to fix our attention on anything is a struggle. For us to slow down and really examine anything, even things of great value can be a struggle. But on this Easter Sunday, I want us to slow down and look not just at the account of the resurrection. Obviously, that is of infinite value, but I want us to look at this remarkable event that occurred on that very, sur- that very first Easter Sunday, an event that we tend to skip right over without thinking too much about it and maybe missing the infinite value that it has for us. I wish, in a sense, uh, I wish we had, you know, we're in Luke, like Luke 6 or 7 in our normal study, and then we step out of that for Uh, Easter and and go to the end, but if we had time uh, the last few weeks to go through this chapter, Luke has three different accounts in this chapter of what happened that first Easter Sunday, and the the first account is very familiar to you. The women go to the tomb in the first account. They go to anoint Jesus' body early in the morning, but they don't find him there. Do you remember? Instead, they encounter an angel that says, Jesus is risen just as he said he would. 
So the women rush back to the disciples. They rush back into Jerusalem to the disciples to tell them, this is what we saw. This is what the angel said to us. But the disciples, Luke says, they didn't believe the women. And and Luke's quote is because their words seemed like nonsense. People don't walk out of a tomb. The second The second scene is those two dejected disciples on their way on the road to Emmaus. They encounter Jesus, but Luke says they didn't even recognize Jesus. They walked along with him as this stranger explained to them that everything that had happened in the last few weeks, that everything was foretold in the Scriptures, and that the Scriptures were all about the Messiah and the suffering uh, that he would endure for them. And then when those, when those brothers, they got to Emmaus and Jesus acted like he was going along past there and they begged him, just stay with us and talk with us more. And he stayed. And when he, when he broke the bread, when he blessed it, suddenly they realized exactly who he was and immediately he disappeared. What did they do? They got up from the dinner table and rushed back to Jerusalem at night to tell the disciples who, who John say the disciples were huddled in a room behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They went back to tell them all that they'd seen. And now we come this morning to the third scene. We find those same disciples gathered behind locked doors discussing the events of the first Easter Sunday discussing the women's account of what they saw at the tomb, discussing uh, the, the men from Emmaus and, and their account of, of meeting Jesus. And Luke says, while they were still talking about all that happened that day, suddenly the risen Savior appears to these failed, fearful, confused, troubled disciples. And he brings them exactly what they need. So let's jump in and let's look at it. Uh, if you look at your outline and your bulletin, oh, by the way, we have a, a new addition in the bulletin this week. You have a little QR code there for the further up, further in questions. Uh, Jennifer Thompson works very hard on those and they are excellent. And this will make them even easier for you to get to. But if you look at your outline, the risen Savior's gracious appearance to his failed, confused, and troubled disciples brings First of all, peace. Look at verse 36 and 37. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, just put yourself in their position for a minute. Consider their position. Imagine the scene. Here they are huddled behind locked doors in fear of the Jews. The Jews just crucified Jesus. What's going to happen to his followers, right? They're discussing everything they've heard, the amazing things they've heard today that they just can't believe. And suddenly Jesus passes through. John says he he just passed through the wall, through the doors, and shows up in their midst. And his very first word to them, they're frightened, they're startled, they're fearful. His very first words were, peace to you or peace be upon you. That's not a phrase we use all that often these days, is it? Many people, when they use it, they use it more as a spiritual um, platitude, I guess you'd say, a a platitude for our younger members, just a nice statement that really doesn't have a lot of meaning or weight to it. 
But there's some church traditions where it actually has meaning and weight and where and people will greet you when they see you, whether it's at church or in the community, and they'll say, peace be with you. And the right response is, yeah, my Episcopalian roots are coming out. But what does it mean when we say, peace be with you? What does it mean? Well, it means something like this. May the favor of God, the favor that brings ultimate well-being and shalom and peace, may the favor of God be on you. It has weight. Can you imagine being the disciples, hearing that? Given their failure, what do you think they might have expected to hear? I was thinking about that this week. How could you have failed me so badly? Right? You abandoned me? You ran away when I needed you the most? And Peter, you denied even knowing me three times and the third time called down curses on yourself and said, I don't even know the man. I clearly told you the cross awaited me. I clearly told you I'd rise on the third day, but you didn't believe me. I invested three years in you. How disappointing. Jesus didn't say any of that. He says to his fearful failed, confused, troubled, you can go on and on to his disciples. He simply says, peace be with you. I love that. You and I have a risen Savior who spoke peace to his failed disciples on that first Easter evening. And you know what? The Scripture says he hadn't changed. He speaks peace to his followers today. Even when we fail him, which if we're honest, we do often, even when we're confused or fearful or troubled, he speaks peace to our hearts. He could have recounted with excruciating detail every failure, but his word is simply peace. Peace be with you. That's the kind of Savior we have. A Savior who knows our hearts way better than we do, right? He knows all our failures, all our sins, all our troubles, all our fears. And he says, may the favor of God, my Father, the favor that brings ultimate joy and peace and well-being of heart and soul, may the favor of God, my Father, be on you. It's on full display here in this very first verse. But there's also an application that's broader than that for believers. I was uh, reading an old sermon of my friend Ligon Duncan for you first presers back there. I was reading a sermon that he preached about 15 or 20 years ago this week, and he said this. Ligon said, there's a word for us and how we deal with others here. For how could followers of that kind of Savior... How could disciples of that kind of forgiving God, how could they treasure up bitterness in their hearts and refuse to forgive others? It's like, whew. 
He goes on to say, what he has forgiven in us is far greater than what we're called to forgive in others. And he's absolutely right. There's great comfort for us, yes, in this verse, in this greeting of peace to his failed disciples. There's great comfort for us, but there should also be such a heart, Ligon is saying, such a heart in us for others. The question is, do we have such a heart? I love what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then he just writes about all the implications of that. He's right. You and I, if we're, if we're here this morning and we're in Christ and we're believing in him, we have peace with God through what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension and through what the scriptures say, even now what he's doing for us is interceding for us. We've gained access to the grace and mercy of God. How, how could we treasure up bitterness in our hearts to others and refuse to forgive? The risen Savior's gracious appearance to his failed, confused, and troubled disciples brings, first of all, peace, but it also brings comfort, secondly. It brings comfort. Look at verse 37 again, down through verse 40. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. It's a gentle rebuke at the beginning, isn't it? It's a gentle rebuke by the Savior, by the risen Savior. Why are you so troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? As if he's saying, I told you over and over this is what was going to happen. He knows they're startled. He knows they're frightened. He knows they think they've seen a ghost. So he doesn't just gently rebuke them, but he also issues this gracious invitation. He says, look at my hands and feet. Touch me and see, I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and bones. Look at the wounds in my hands. I've risen just like I said. It's a gracious invitation wed to the gentle rebuke. What's he doing? He's helping his frightened disciples, his troubled disciples. He's helping them in their struggle to believe. I love what Luke records next. Look at verse 41 through 43. He says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, what's happening here is they're moving in the right direction, but they're not there yet. They've gone from what I would call negative disbelief to positive disbelief. While, it says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. One writer that I read this week, I can't remember who it was, but he said this. He said, they're in that wacky state of giddy disbelief. Doesn't sound like a theologian, does it? That wacky state of giddy disbelief, it's just too good to be true. Have you ever experienced that? Sports fans you've experienced that. If you're truly a sports fan, you've experienced that. It's just too good to be true. 
Think back to the 2013 Iron Bowl between number one Alabama and number four Auburn with one second left on the clock. I'm not going to tell you that story because the SEC football is not a safe place to use illustrations from. (laughs) Too many Alabama friends in here and too many Auburn fans. Let's back up a little farther. Let's go to 1988. World Series Game 1, 1988. The Oakland Oakland A's are favored over the underdog Los Angeles Dodgers. The A's are leading four to three. It's the bottom of the ninth and there are two outs. Okay, bottom of the ninth, two outs. The A's are ahead and Kirk Gibson, you remember this? Kirk, some of you are baseball fans will get this. Kirk Gibson limps to the plate. He's in pain. He's obviously in pain. He's limping. He's got a pulled hamstring and a torn ligament in his right knee. The count is three balls and two strikes, and Gibson hits a home run to win the game. And Jack Buck, the announcer, the famous announcer, Jack Buck, screams into the microphone over and over again in disbelief. He said this, I don't believe what I just saw. That's what the disciples, that's where they, they disbelieve for joy. They're on their way. They're not there yet. They disbelieved for joy. They can't quite believe what they're seeing. Can you see the enormous comfort and the lengths to which Jesus will go to bring that comfort to them? Touch me and see. Hand me some fish. Ghosts don't eat fish. He's not asking them to believe in contradiction to their senses here. He's not, he's not asking them to believe in some break with reality. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, believe me, I'm real. See me, touch me, touch the wounds, watch me eat. Just as I promised, I've risen from the dead. And friends, again, he's not changed. Our risen Savior graciously comes to us, his failed confused, troubled, sometimes fearful disciples, and he brings peace, and he brings his comfort, and thirdly, he brings truth. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, it's important that we not miss the context here. All through this chapter, Luke's got this recurring theme of remembering. The angel said to the women in verse 6, remember, you know, when they were startled, it says the angel said, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he, being Jesus, remember how he told you he'd be crucified and raised on the third day? And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, Jesus reminds the men of what the prophets had spoken. He said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? He's doing it again here. He's taking his, he's pointing his failed, confused, troubled, whatever else you want to say. He's pointing his disciples back to Scripture and opening their minds so that they might finally understand what they haven't understood so far. 
It's much like what he did with the two men on the road to Emmaus. Can you imagine him saying, do you remember Genesis, thir- uh, Genesis 3.15? I'm the one who's promised that will crush the head of Satan. And they're going, oh. I'm the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. In fact, I'm the point of the entire sacrificial system. I'm the ram caught in the thicket when Abraham was tested with Isaac in Genesis 22. That's me. I'm the forsaken one that David wrote of in Psalm 22. I'm the promised child in Isaiah 9 and the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Jesus opened their mind that they might understand that what's written in the scriptures is about him. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are about him. And we wonder, why was that necessary? Why was it necessary that he opened their minds to the truths of scripture? And the answer is clear because they still didn't understand. But also... He did not want them to rest their belief in the resurrection on their personal experience alone. I'll say it again because that's important. He did not want them to rest rest their belief in the resurrection on their personal experience alone because Jesus would say, resting your faith on miracles is not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of the resurrection not just Uh, on, on that experience, but on the clear testimony of Scripture. So he opened their minds to the Scriptures. I love what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.19, if you're taking notes. He writes to the church and he says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Scripture is an incredible gift to us as believers. And and as Hebrews says, and as we pray, it's living and active and it can penetrate our hearts and it never returns to him void. I've been reading it and studying it for a lot of years and the Spirit still brings fresh understanding to me from it. Jesus would say divine illumination, the, the opening of our minds to the truths of Scripture through the work of the Spirit, it's an absolute necessity if we really want to understand it. And on that first Easter night, Jesus took the blinders off his disciples' eyes and he opened their minds that they could see that the Scriptures were about him. The risen Savior graciously comes to his failed, confused, troubled disciples and he brings peace to their troubled hearts and comfort to their unbelieving hearts and he brings the truths of Scripture upon which they can base their lives and lastly, lastly he brings mission. He brings mission to our lives. Look at verse 47 again and we'll go through the end. Uh, 46. Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer on the thir- and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be, should be complaint. <laughs> Let me slow down. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Also, if we read through Luke, through the whole chapter of 24, we'd see each scene that we talked about, each scene ends in them being called to be witnesses. 
The women go back to the tomb, from the tomb to witness to the disciples. The men on the way to Emmaus go back to Jerusalem to witness to the disciples. And here Jesus is saying to the disciples, you're to go and be witnesses to everything you've heard and seen and learned and understand. You're to go and proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins through him. You're to proclaim that nation, that message to the nations. You know, in a sense, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission, is what this is. And he says, you're to wait now, wait on the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Father's promised it. The Spirit will be the one who changes hearts, who renews hearts. The Spirit will use you and will speak through you. You see, Jesus wasn't just raised from the grave that he might appear to those disciples and bring them comfort and peace. He was also raised that he might commission them as spirit-empowered witnesses to the nations. And the same is true if you're in Christ this morning, if you're here and you're a believer, the same is true for you and for me. If we're trusting in Christ, he didn't just take on flesh. He didn't just live a perfectly righteous life under the law. He didn't just die an atoning death on a Roman cross and rise from the grave that you and I might have personal peace and comfort. You and, I, you and I might build our lives on the truths of Scripture. That wasn't his sole purpose. He also calls us to be witnesses to the nations of his gracious work, to be witnesses to the nations of the reality that indeed 2,000 years ago he got up and walked out of that tomb. I need to wrap up. I want to end, I want to end with a story uh, of a play written almost 100 years ago by an Englishman named John Maysfield. It was written in 1925, and the, the name of the play is The Trial of Jesus. In this play, John Maysfield has the centurion whom he names Longinus. Longinus is reporting into Pilate after the crucifixion, and Longinus was the officer in charge of the execution, and after he gives his report to Pilate, Pilate's wife calls the centurion over to her and, and wants to question him about the, about the prisoner and how the prisoner died. And this is important to Pilate's wife because she had had a dream about Jesus the night before and she had warned him, she had warned Pilate to let him go. So the centurion comes and gives her the account of Jesus' death and she asks him this, do you think he's really dead? And Longinus answers, no, lady, I don't. And she asks, then where is he? And Longinus replies, let loose in the world where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. It's just a play, but it's true. He's let loose in the world where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. Indeed, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is true. And he is today alive and let loose in the world and working through the power of his spirit. And he continues to change hearts and lives as repentance and the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name to the nations and to our neighbors. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the resurrection is a historical reality. 
that indeed, Lord, we can gather today to celebrate the day that you walked out of that tomb. We thank you for the reality that you graciously come to us in the midst of our fears and our confusion and our failures and our doubts and troubles, that you come and you bring to us what you brought to your disciples on that very first Easter night. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to find our peace and comfort, the things that our hearts really crave, to find those things met fully in you. We ask that you would help us to root our lives like you did the disciples in the truths of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would send us as witnesses commissioned and empowered by your spirit, send us to the nations and to our neighbors that we might live the gospel out well, that we might share the message that repentance and forgiveness of sins is possible only through faith in you. We ask this all in your saving name alone. Amen.